2: So where will you all be uh, when we go to a war with Iran? Well, it kind of depends when we go. Let's say it's in the next, like, two weeks.
3: Well.
0: I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm going to be in the region for it.
2: Oh, good. You'll have an upfront <laughs> up seat. I'll
0: <laughs> we'll be so. able to see those A jets. small,
3: tasteful underground bunker. Yeah. <laughs> There's probably space Appropriately
2: for you. decorated. You can buy them on CB2. You know, when
1: Tammy and I were young, before we were married, we were, I don't know, 19 or 20— the first Iraq Gulf War, Tammy got evacuated from, from Israel for oh. it. And so I,
0: I thought I'd go back for another war. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> it's
0: good. You know, I miss that one. Actually, I was in Iran right before the second Iraq War.
2: Yeah,
1: so it's a tradition.
0: I I maybe you're the cause.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think you need to stay right here, young maybe lady. Maybe you
3: shouldn't go this time, Tammy.
0: Got room in your concrete bunker?
3: <laughs> Always for you.
2: Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the drumbeat of war edition. That's a drumbeat, you guys. <laughs> I'm Shane Harris, I always travel with a backup drummer. <laughs>
0: Ben Wittes' short career as a backbeater. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be killed in the war. He'll be remembered
2: for all of his musical talent. Oh, bite
0: your tongue. No,
2: I'll be staying right here for the war. Somebody actually asked me the other day. I was at my gym, and uh, somebody I talk to every now and then about who knows what I do. He says, so will you be going off to cover Iran? I was like, A, I don't know that we're quite there yet. <laughs> and B, no. <laughs> <laughs> Proudly, twenty years in service. Never covered a war in the war zone. Not ashamed to admit it. <laughs> well,
0: a, cheers, cheers. cheers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, it's a heavy drinking episode. Yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. What are good, we? Yeah. What
2: are we drinking
1: this week, Shane? Uh,
2: this is Woodford Reserve, who sadly is not a sponsor. No,
1: but. If Woodford Reserve wants to become a sponsor sure. of rational security, we would so happily endorse this sure. product. We could As it is, we're not going to
2: endorse it. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to tell you whether I'm enjoying it or not. Uh, <laughs> we are here in the Jungle Studio. It's the whole gang. Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, Tamarcoff, and Wittes. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. This week on the podcast, tensions with Iran escalate amid new intelligence suggesting U.S. personnel in the Middle East could be at risk. The Russia investigation is now under investigation by a federal prosecutor, sort of, kind of, (laughs) and two Homeland Security officials try to halt a mass deportation plan just before they were deported while ousted. They don't really get deported from a department.
0: Deported from the office.
2: Exactly, deported from office. Excluded, as they say. Excluded, as they say, as they say. right, uh, with no appeal. Let's talk first about the obviously big, the big story. Uh, it's been a busy couple of days, really. Uh, uh, since we last recorded the podcast, the U.S. has sent a carrier group into – The Gulf, amid credible and specific intelligence, as it's been described by multiple U.S. officials and allied officials, about threats to U.S. forces in Iraq in particular, Uh, I believe today the State Department, correct me if I'm wrong, Tammy, has ordered the evacuation or at least the voluntary evacuation of all non-essential personnel from diplomatic facilities in Iraq.
0: So it's an ordered departure. It's not voluntary. OK. But it it's is only non-essential personnel. OK. And there so are so... already no families How
3: many kids. non-essential personnel are in Iraq? This is a real question. <laughs> that's a good like, question. Are there lots of extra people hanging out in Iraq right now? Or is this like a small group of people?
0: Yeah. No, I think that's an excellent question. Because obviously, this is a high-risk post. We have the embassy in Baghdad. We have a consulate in Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan. And because it's a high-risk post, it's already unaccompanied. You can't bring your family. And it's already sort of every position there has to be justified. So when, it, when you say, you know, um, essential, uh, what you're talking about is probably drawing down the people who help order and distribute supplies, people who, you know, might um, work in facilities management. And so a lot of normal procedures will just slow down but the embassy will still be open, consular services might take longer. Everything's going to take longer.
2: So this gets to my question then. So if we have – on the one hand, we're ordering personnel out. On the other hand, it's not essential personnel. On the one hand, we have intelligence about uh, Iranian boats being seen moving munitions and being loaded with rocket launchers. On the other hand, Iranian boats are all the time delivering munitions to proxy forces in the region. So what are we to make of this? This is all happening obviously against the backdrop – of a lot of reporting, which we've talked about on the podcast in the past week or so, about John Bolton taking us on the war path. There was a New York Times story this week that said uh, plans for uh, a possible military presence in Iran were being drawn up as many as 120,000 troops. The president then turns around and says, I didn't hear about this, but it's fake news, but I'd send them anyway. We're getting lots of mixed signals. So how should people be reading this? I mean, are we genuinely on a glide path or on a war path, you say, just some kind of military confrontation with Iran? Or is there a lot of signaling going on here that's not really adding up to an imminent military action?
0: I think it's actually difficult to know what the intentions of the Trump administration are. What we've seen is that, number one, they have escalated pressure on Iran, um, announcing that they're not going to issue any more waivers to the oil sanctions and try and shut down Iran's ability to sell oil to global markets. They have uh, put the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps on the foreign terrorist organization list the first time that we have listed a state entity as a foreign terrorist organization. So they've definitely kind of ratcheted up the pressure. At the same time, we've seen statements from senior administration officials saying, we're open to talking to Iran, but, you know, not— doing anything concretely to open that diplomatic channel, even though European allies are sort of begging us to deal with this diplomatically. And then simultaneously, as you mentioned, Shane, these military deployments that are designed to send a signal of determination, of readiness to respond to any forceful Iranian provocation or attacks. Um, So all of this Looks like a coercive diplomacy campaign where you use shows of force and threats and sanctions to coerce an adversary into policy change. Except the U.S. government hasn't said what it's looking for. What is the policy change that it wants from the Iranians? And but hasn't
2: Bolton said that? I mean, he wants regime change.
0: Well, right. So, you do, what is the expectation there that the Islamic Republic is going to sort of wake up tomorrow morning and say, "Oh, gee, we give up and we're handing the keys over to right. you, John Bolton"? You know, that's, that's not, always the
2: dream, right?
0: That's not the way it's going to go down. And I think you know the danger here is not necessarily rooted in an assumption that John Bolton or Mike Pompeo or President Trump wants a war with Iran. The danger here, I think, is rooted in the inevitable dynamic of these kinds of actions. So we send a carrier group into the Gulf. A carrier group is big. It's got a lot of different ships around that carrier. And the Gulf is very small. So that increases the possibility that you might have Iranian IRGC boats, which are zooming around the Gulf all the time, you know, bump up against an American ship or get a little too close to an American ship. And you could have an accidental incident at sea. And something like that could easily spiral into a forceful escalation that nobody planned and nobody intended. But it's sort of, well, they did this. We have to respond.
2: Do you think, I mean, am I being too conspiratorial in this? One cynical way of looking at this might say, and that's exactly what John Bolton wants, because the scenario that you're describing of sort of inadvertent escalation and miscalculation, it's always there. It's always been there with Iran, particularly in this like very highly contained area when we're talking about these navigational passageways. Is is that going too far uh, or, or or do we – I mean – Yeah, somebody tell me I'm being paranoid by thinking that.
3: I mean, mine is in the form of a follow-up question or or a tag-along question to that, I I think directed at Tammy as well. And that's, you know, is what we're seeing right now this massive process failure? Of last week, we talked about that New Yorker article that sort of talked about John Bolton kind of going it alone, not not serving that convening, harmonizing function that the National Security Advisor is supposed to be doing. We're seeing really weird uh, signals that maybe process isn't working right now, like when DOD is asked about, hey, those classified plans for, I guess, an invasion of Iraq, what about those? Referring those questions to the National Security Council, sort of an indication of DOD being like, yeah, we don't really know what's going on. You're going to have to ask the White House. Or they want to
2: force it back on the White House.
3: Yeah. Is there evidence here that like, the, all the appropriate people are in the room or is this John Bolton kind of on his own?
2: Well, and also just one last point on that. If you look at where a lot of the reporting on this is coming out of, it's coming out of a building with five sides on it. Just saying.
0: Yeah, so sure. So there may be people
2: who have some concerns who are airing them.
0: So but I, I think we can't assume that John Bolton is driving this train because we do have a president of the United States who is not at all shy about – letting his views out in public. And we've already heard him kind of tamp down um, after the news emerged that the Pentagon had presented options for a use of force against Iran, presumably in retaliation for something or perhaps to you know, try and uh, degrade Iranian nuclear capabilities if there was some concern about a renewed proliferation program. You know, the president came out and said, well, we would never send 120,000 troops. That's crazy. But, you know, if something really happened, then we would respond and we'd send even more than that. So and we know also from the New Yorker article that Trump himself is very wise to the fact that Bolton wants a war, and Trump doesn't want a war and that's a difference between them. So I wouldn't discount, you know, that that there are decisions being taken that could have the effect of pushing the president into a corner, but he's not necessarily going to consent to staying in that corner. He I mean just as he did with Kim Jong-un, he could pick up the phone and call the Supreme Leader well, of Iran. He wants that. Right? He's
2: been asking him to call him. So I think this- Which I think Bolton does not want to happen.
1: I think this is a key aspect of it, right? So the president being less than emotionally healthy actually has strong instincts about Iran, some of which are not warlike at all, right? He clearly does has a Ah kind of bernie sanders like allergy to certain types of interventionism, and on the other hand, he has this dogmatic idea dating from the campaign that the Iran deal was a terrible deal and that it you know did terrible things. and so he wants to
0: tear that up so and, and get a better one.
1: And get a better one. So he surrounds himself with people who are enthusiastic about getting rid of the Iran deal, which tends to, because you have to have some answer to the question how are you going to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear state and dominating the region? That answer tends to correlate analytically for people with, well, let's use a lot of coercive diplomacy and up to and including a, a strike if we need to. But for Trump, it doesn't because he actually believes in magic. And for Trump, the answer is, okay, well, we'll just you know tear up the Iran deal because it was the worst deal ever and we'll get a better one. Uh, and you can just say that and there's no strategic vision to how to do that. So here's the problem. You surround yourself with people who are And, you know, people get mad at me when I say this. John Bolton is a bright person. He is not stupid. He is a bureaucratic power player. He is very capable and he is manipulative. So you surround yourself with highly capable people of this variety who are actually want a war with Iran, but you don't. And you are then the subject of a lot of manipulation in that regard And eventually, you have to put your foot down and say, okay, I'm going to resolve the magical thinking problem by some means other than this, right? And Trump, you know, so far doesn't seem willing to do that. He really wants the position to be, we're going to tear up the Iran deal and get a better deal. And there's not going to be a war, there aren't going to be any consequences. And Yet the result of that is that he is potentially subject to significant manipulation by people like
3: Bolton. But I think we are also seeing potentially signs of – Seriously warped presentation of intelligence, including multiple leaks to U.S. newspapers sort of um, uh, attributing various things to Iran. And then we had um, we have the top British general in Iraq coming out and saying, quote, there there's been no increased threat from Iranian backed forces in Iraq and Syria. So we now have the U.K. going on the record and saying, yeah, we don't know what you guys are talking about. I would caution
2: on that. I think that maybe he wasn't privy to all of the information and he later tried to backtrack that. But to your point, I think one thing you're hitting on that that is becoming clearer, and even from our own reporting, is I think that – that there are this that there, there is a stream of intelligence about about provocative Iranian actions, everyone agrees. The daylight comes when we talk about the severity of those threats.
0: And is how this new, new? Are they?
2: exactly? Is it new? Is it old? Is it stuff that Iran does all the time? And I think some people I've talked to have raised an interesting question of are the Iranians miscalculating in the following way? They're used to doing provocative stuff that sort of gets our back up and we you know, pound our chest and we warn them not to do things. And eventually we just sort of back down and everything goes back to status quo. Are they not understanding that this administration is not going to back down, at least not that quickly and that easily, which raises the possibility for escalation. And then you arrive at that scenario you were laying out, Tammy, where you know things get out of hand, people are bumping up against one another, the tensions are high, and we're miscommunicating, partly because we are misunderstanding one another.
0: Yeah, I think that is the scenario that a lot of regional specialists are seeing and are very concerned about. Another scenario is the one Ben laid out where you know, the president is just running the same play he ran with Rocketman, right? He's talking tough. He's thumping his chest. He's taking aggressive actions. And then he's going to have a big negotiation. And, and look who would like, like, a like hero. to avoid
2: that? John Bolton. <laughs>
0: right. Um, but, you know, if the president it wants to do it, the president is going to do it. There's a third scenario, though, I think in the Iran case, um, which is that By stoking this tension so much, he has actually – President Trump has actually unsettled some of America's regional partners who most wanted to see tougher U.S. policy toward Iran, who were most supportive of him jumping out of the Iran deal, and that's the Gulf Arab states who have to live next to Iran and if Trump doesn't want a war, they really don't want a war. And so starting, you know, even a couple of months ago, there were signals coming out of the Arab Gulf like, oh, wow, where are all these increased sanctions going? What's the exit ramp for the Iranians here? Maybe we need a diplomatic path. And then this week you had this unprecedented joint op-ed between a former Iranian diplomat and a former Saudi Official in the New York Times saying it's time for Saudi and Iran to talk. And so scenario number three is that U.S. pressure, the sort of madman in Washington, drives our allies to talk to Iran and solve our problem for us. And so Both Trump... authors
1: of that op-ed were executed the following
0: <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> they, they were not. And I actually think that op-ed was very unlikely to have been written without some kind of behind-the-scenes Acquiescence, if not encouragement, from the respective governments, and that's why I think it's significant. So I think Trump could get everything he wants. He could get, you know, increased pressure resulting in in some sort of diplomatic achievement, and he doesn't even have to do the diplomacy himself.
2: It could be a big, beautiful deal, you guys.
0: It could be the deal of the century. Send
1: Jared Kushner.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's got a plan, guys.
2: Oh, I'm just going to transition ever so quickly into topic two. the Russia investigation. Yeah,
1: speaking of Jared Kushner, <laughs>
2: uh, the Russia investigation—you remember that? <laughs> Seems so long ago. It's been relegated to topic two. I know. That. Like something... when is the last time that something Trump Russia-related happened was in know. the second segment? Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Russia investigation is kind of, sort of under investigation. A uh, longtime prosecutor, uh, Mr. Durham, not in Durham, North Carolina, by the way. I always imagine John Durham being in North Carolina. Nope, he just moved to North Carolina. Just moved to car John, North just Carolina. Just
3: Carolina. seriously, man, get with
1: it. It's a Connecticut thing. Yeah,
2: it's weird. Uh, who has a history of investigating sensitive national security matters, including the destruction of? Uh, tapes of uh, interrogations of CIA detainees. Uh, Attorney General Barr has asked Durham to step in here and not exactly, at least as we understand it right now, according to the latest reporting, conduct a criminal inquiry, but sort of a review of what the FBI did and of all the intelligence that went into the Russia investigation. Ben or Susan, I mean, this strikes me as sort of a compromise maybe by the attorney general or an attempt to, on the one hand, we talked about this last week as him possibly being somebody who might believe in some of these conspiracy theories about the origins of the Russian investigation, on the one hand to speak to that possibility, that suspicion, on the other hand to appoint somebody who doesn't have the power of a prosecutor – Uh, and who I think is known for taking quite a long time in some of these investigations. So maybe this is a way to be able to say to his boss, the president, don't worry, sir, all of this is under investigation.
3: So I actually think there's another way to read that, right? So one way, so by picking Durham, who has a reputation for taking years to complete investigations, um, (laughs) that maybe, oh, it's a way to hold to say that you're doing something while holding Trump at bay. That's one way to read it. The other way to read it is the whole point here is to be able to say that certain people and certain actions are under investigation because the point is not uh, that, that you actually believe an investigation is going to find something. The point is to create the existence of an investigation. As a way to discredit people. Now, the thing that is strange and suspicious here is. But there are already investigations into this exact matter. Mike, Michael Horowitz, who's the inspector general, is conducting a review of the Russia investigation that presumably or reportedly is going to be wrapping up in the next couple weeks or months. Uh, John Huber, Huber, who is the U.S. attorney in Utah, is conducting some kind of review of something Although related to so what, so what the FBI yeah. did. Sorry. Not totally clear what he's doing. So this is now the third reported review into what happened during, into what happened uh, in, in the FBI investigation in 2016. You know, we've talked about it before. The key question here is whether or not this was a properly predicated investigation or not. There has been zero evidence to support the proposition that this was not properly predicated. And so a little bit, and I guess this is sort of a meta question at this point, you know, and maybe we have to wait for the inspector general's report to come out, but What is the predicate for this investigation? What is the evidence that there was some wrongdoing that it's now appropriate to bring in a third actor, the US attorney in Connecticut, to to look at this yet again?
1: So I think the answer is if you're not conducting a criminal investigation, you don't really need a predicate. The attorney general is allowed to kind of do a review of anything he wants. And I was trying to think the other day of what are prior examples of attorneys general just getting nervous about something and saying, I want a review of it. And I could only come up with one example of that, um, which we can talk about. But It's Wenho Lee, right? Yeah. yeah. So the way, Janet Reno got antsy about the Wen Lee case back in the late 90s and asked a prosecutor to – kind of do a review of it. And he did, and it was a pretty substantial report that actually had some pretty important policy implications for what was called the wall, you know, and that eventually, between intelligence and law enforcement, that eventually came down after 9-11. Uh, so that was a a pretty important and kind of fateful thing. And as I recall, it was not there was That was not a criminal investigation. It was just kind of an administrative review. So what Barr is doing here is not wholly unprecedented. What I don't understand about it is – well, first of all, I think there are a few things you can say. So the first is if there were adequate factual predication for a criminal investigation, as Susan suggests, I think he would have – There would be a criminal investigation. And so I think the fact that there is no criminal investigation suggests that, at least right now, we are not looking at a situation where one is predicated.
0: You Uh, mean not looking at a situation where somebody in the Justice Department did something wrong?
1: Well, or that they even have evidence that suggests that a crime may have been – once you have evidence that a crime has been committed or may be committed – you can investigate that as a criminal matter. If, you're, if you haven't even opened a criminal investigation, it suggests that you don't have that evidence. That said, uh, that raises the question to me of and, – and this is related to the point that Susan made of how is this different from the IG investigation that's already there. Now, the IG is empowered to look at the predication and he is empowered to look at these specific investigative steps that the uh, FBI has taken including the Carter page FISA and all the sort of stuff that the conspiracy theorists are talking about but there is one thing that happened that he is not empowered to look at and that is the CIA's role in anything because it's the Justice Department Inspector General who does not have jurisdiction over the CIA and that means that if say the attorney general were concerned about the conduct of another agency as he suggested in his congressional testimony recently and if he were potentially anxious about some of the sort of wilder conspiracy theories in which for example and i don't i don't know if these are his concerns but if for example he were concerned about whether how the CIA had engaged with foreign intelligence agencies in order to have them look at the Trump campaign, which is something I don't believe happened, but is certainly something that in the fever swamp people do believe happened. You probably couldn't get to that through a Justice Department Inspector General investigation. You could get to it through a kind of general administrative review. Finally, I want to say that you know, John Durham is a serious guy and he is not a partisan person. He is not a person, who, you know, he's served uh, over a pretty long period of time. He has gravely annoyed prosecutors of both parties with his propensity to take forever to resolve things. But he does resolve them in an authoritative, serious fashion. And so I, I do think that there is some advantage to – Having sort of a like kick it to a grown up, I'm not sure how much of a different grown up he is from Michael Horowitz, the Justice Department IG.
3: So I want to put one possible innocent explanation on the table, and that's that Laura Coates has reported that Barr is working closely with uh, Gina Haspel at the CIA, with the ODNI director Dan Coates and with FBI director Ray on, quote, surveillance issues related to the Trump campaign. One way to look at this is maybe they are considering implementing some form of procedures, right? There are attorney general's procedures for handling all kinds of special uh, special cases. There are procedures related to the handling of politically sensitive and campaign related materials. It is possible that the Justice Department has decided in the wake of everything that's happened that the, the, this is an area in which uh, they need to think about what the rules and procedures might be, what are the what are the reporting requirements, who needs to sign off for what, how do you inform the intelligence committees, who in the White House is informed, et cetera, which would not be a wholly unreasonable thing to do. One way you might go about starting that effort would be having somebody prepare sort of a comprehensive report. It's not the only way to go about doing that. If that is what's happening, uh, certainly the way this information is being reported and the suggestion by Barr's own comments and others, it makes it look far more like this is something targeted at what happened in the past and investigating what happened in the past rather than a forward-looking procedures review. But it, it is possible, and, and I think that is one type of review that would also sort of fit the current facts and, and sort of is, is really the one that would give me the least anxiety. If that's the case, I would hope that somebody who's going to sort of sit atop an interagency process the FBI director, the, the CIA director, uh, the, the, the DNI director one of them would come out and sort of give validation to we think this is an important issue set, we think that there needs to be new new rules. This is not uh, about uh, retaliatory investigations or, or attempting to discredit the president's opponents. This is about confronting what had been an unprecedented situation and realizing that we need to adopt a new set of neutral rules. Now, that's speculating on my yeah. part a little bit, but it's it's the most comfort I can give myself. Do
2: you, do you think that, that it's, <clears throat> it's an interesting thought of, like kind of who comes out and speaks at the end of this? And it strikes me that that what you just described, and which may be a good thing that comes out of it, say, so like, let's tighten up the dialogue, which are the rules around you know how you investigate various matters, including political campaigns, that that would properly be something that the FBI director would speak to, or even more properly. The attorney general. I mean, I think the CIA director would look at this and say, we don't investigate U.S. persons. And whatever we were doing during the Russian interference campaign was directed at trying to figure out what Russia was doing and using Russian sources. Now, of course, if, you know, NSA picks up information about, you know, Russians talking about people in a political campaign, they can pass that on. But I wonder if, you know, the CIA has been reported is cooperating with this. I'm very curious to sort of see how far that goes, because then you're pulling the CIA and the intelligence community into a place where they really don't want to be, and have tried very studiously to to stay out of.
3: Yeah, although anytime you're going to have intelligence streams <clears throat> feeding into places like the Justice Department, anytime you have foreign uh, foreign nations or foreign nationals that are going to be naturally involved in forms of investigation, oftentimes the intelligence community is involved, right? So we have the Gates procedures, which is the set of procedures governing when the intelligence community collects, uh, not targeted, but um, but incidentally collects communications uh, from or related to members of Congress because nobody had rules for that. And then all of a sudden it was there and it looked an awful lot like the intelligence community was spying on members of Congress, which they weren't. So then they they set this new set of procedures. So really it's not, there's a way that the, the intelligence community really does function as sort of secondary here, really in the sense that they're they're feeding intelligence into a system sort of under the ordinary rules. And this is a way of saying wait a minute, this is a form of intelligence that you need to think about a little bit differently, you need to treat a little bit differently, or if you are going to put it into the system, um, you need to notify, right? So there's now a notification requirement uh, You know, to Congress whenever that information is shared.
2: The wonderful subplot to all of this being, of course, that while there were various shenanigans and meetings between mysterious Russians and members of the Trump campaign and FBI informants and members of the Trump campaign going on in London, who was the chief of station in London at the time for the CIA?
3: Da, da, da. Gina, Haspel. Gina Haspel. Oh, man.
2: <laughs> I just wanted to play conspiracy theorist for a second. I yeah. don't actually believe Gina Haspel was, like, you know, in a bar meeting George Papadopoulos. She <laughs> was as <laughs>
3: <manager>. <laughs> <laughs> George Papadopoulos turns on the TV and is like, wait a minute. Wait a
1: minute? <laughs> I ever, recognize ever, her. Ever seen a picture of Gina Haspel and Simona Mangiante together? <laughs>
0: Deep cut, guys. Deep
2: cut. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, All right, let's move on to... What's, should we call this? Profiles in Courage? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will read from the lead of uh, uh,
0: Profiles and You Just Don't Know How Courageous I Was. <laughs>
2: <laughs> profiles in I'm Courageous, Just Not In This Instance. Uh, I'm reading from the lead here from uh, my colleagues Nick Miroff and Josh Dossie's report. In the weeks before they were ousted last month, Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen and top immigration enforcement official Ronald Vidiello challenged a secret White House plan to arrest thousands of parents and children and oblique... Operation against migrants in ten major U.S. cities. They say, according to seven current and former Department of Homeland Security officials, the administration wanted to target the crush of families that had crossed the U.S.-Mexico border after the president's failed zero-tolerance prosecution push in early 2018. The ultimate purpose, the officials said, was a show of force to send the message that the United States was going to get tough by swiftly moving to detain and deport recent immigrants, including families with children. So this is the second big story we've seen about the administration kind of wanting to implement Uh, You know, shock and awe procedures, you might say, on immigration uh, to try and send messages. The other was going to be to dump immigrants in so called sanctuary cities uh, to sort of make them the problem of. Uh, mayors and governors in largely blue states. Um, The story goes on, though, to point out that Nielsen and Vidiello were not opposing this policy out of any ethical or moral obligation, but because they thought that it would divert resources from other DHS missions, namely trying to intercept people who were crossing the border, you know, in the same place that we'd had this child separation policy. So I'll throw this out there to anyone. I mean, it's It is an interesting moment that we find ourselves where the stories of what really went on at the department are coming out, but people didn't necessarily cover themselves in glory. Nevertheless, it appears that their resistance to this plan was one of the reasons that the president ultimately decided we're not going to go with Vidiello to run ICE, and he decided to fire Kirsten Nielsen. So I don't know if in the long run their their strategy was a, a sustained one.
1: I just want to say there needs to be an award name for former officials who have terrible reputations who start peddling heroic stories about themselves. Is this a uh,
0: heroic yes, story? <laughs> seriously, well, like, this is, this. This. this is it? This, this is, is the, your stand? This is not a redemption plea. This is a, I'm not as toxic as you think I am <laughs> plea. Like, that's, what. what is amazing about this is, you know, if the reporting is accurate, Kirsten Nielsen has her allies leaking to reporters that she made an argument to the White House that pursuing this shock and awe campaign would divert resources from separating kids from their parents.
1: Like, we should call it you the know, Rod Rosenstein
0: Award. <laughs> And and you know we've we've talked so many times about the dilemmas of senior officials trying to figure out you know which is the hill on which they want to die after you have walked side by side with the president up and down that many hills does it really matter anymore if you die on one? So look, I'm, I
3: am very much not here for the Christian Nielsen redemption tour, um, which is a bunch of nonsense. And, and I don't think, I, I can't think of a single act uh, she took in her entire tenure, either as deputy chief of staff uh, or the uh, DHS secretary that showed, frankly, an ounce of courage or integrity. So none of this is a defense of Christian Nielsen. Um, that said, this does get to... One of the fundamental tensions of this White House's immigration policy, and or or rather the the paradox of the Stephen Miller the cruelty is the point approach, which is that, All presidents, including President Obama, including President Clinton, um, have struggled with the problem of border security and illegal immigration. It has been a thorny, difficult issue, both on pure security grounds, on humanitarian grounds, on political grounds. It's really, really hard. Obama said again and again, I have this obligation to enforce immigration laws. Uh, I want to do this in a humane way. I want to be reasonable. But these are the laws on the books. And what he and, frankly, George Bush, uh, George W. Bush and, and Bill Clinton before him sort of settled on was this is a resource-constrained world. And so what we're talking about is enforcement priorities. Yes, we are going to enforce immigration laws. Yes, we are going to deport certain individuals. We're going to focus on individuals who you actually want to deport, right, uh, You know, people with criminal records, people who pose actual risks, multiple offenders, these kinds of things. And so, whenever you have Stephen Miller coming in and wanting to do this shock and awe, basically for the purpose of scaring people, right? That I mean, that's this is the idea. You're you're deterring people by making their lives unpleasant, essentially. That this is all coming at the expense of actually effective immigration and border policy. And so, we really do have this sort of this tough on immigration uh, rhetoric that is completely decoupled from what sort of sensible enforcement might look like. And so, by the way, as all these just, you know, inhumane and and sort of immoral and amoral policies are going on, you also have – ICE and and CBP and other agencies not focusing on the serious immigration issues that they're supposed to be doing. And so, you know, again, this story certainly doesn't cloak Nielsen in any kind of glory here, but I think it continues to underscore that even among sort of the Republican immigration hawks, right, people who think that we need to get tough on illegal immigration, you still do have these two camps of people who want, you know, sort of tougher enforcement uh, based on efficacy and people who want really cruelty-based enforcement. And the cruelty-based enforcement people are winning because Stephen Miller is still in the White House and Christian Nielsen is out on the cold trying to get any Washington Post reporter she can find on the phone to tell her sad, sad story.
0: Okay, so I take that point, but I think it's also – I think there's a coalition here. So Stephen Miller, I think, believes this stuff. He since I don't know if he sincerely believes that cruelty is a deterrent, but he sincerely believes that cruelty is justified. Um, <laughs> but you have other people who are facilitating this and encouraging this and supporting this, not because of the policy. There's no policy argument. It's a political argument. This is a great issue. For Republicans, it works really well. Every time they scare their base about migrants, they get stronger support. Every time they say there's a crisis at the border and we have to send troops, they get more support. Um, every time they get Democrats to talk about the cruelty of their policies, it helps mobilize their base. And so, you know, I I think it's it's just worth putting on the table here. At the end of the day, I don't actually think this is about policy for this administration. I think Stephen Miller might be an outlier in this regard. This is about politics for them, and it's politics that work.
1: So I just want to dissent from that. I actually don't think they are politics that work. The president's uh, approval rating has a very low ceiling. It is clear to me that this stuff is base mobilizing – but it is not clear to me that it mobilizes his base more than it mobilizes the base of people who oppose him, and the base of people who oppose him is larger than the base of people who support him. And so I I actually don't know that the stuff works. We have no electoral test of whether it works as president, for him as president other than the 2018 midterms where he got shellacked, at least. At, um, and so I think the proposition that this is a— of uh, a, a, a useful political strategy is a very untested one. And I'm not saying it's not, it won't ultimately be borne out as a re-elect Donald Trump proposition, but I'm. It it is a non-obvious proposition to me. And, you know, particularly in the face of a, uh, you know, a competing narrative posed by an alternative candidate, it's not clear to me that it's you know, not something that animates forty percent of the population and pisses off fifty-five or sixty percent of the population. But
2: one thing that it does do, which is interesting, is it, it does put the morality of our homeland security policy squarely on the table in the twenty twenty election. It allows Democrats to speak directly to you know, the ethics, the morality of these actions and to be able to even, you know, point perhaps, you know, wrongly to Homeland Security officials like Kirsten Nielsen and saying, look, even she objected to it and gloss over the facts of why. But then it also seems to me that it spins right back around on Democrats where you clearly have agreement that the immigration system is broken. Right, so polling, what, you don't
0: care about the law? Well, you want to just let everybody in? You want open borders?
2: Precisely. So you have to come up with some kind of answer for it, right? And and, and while I think you know, plenty of people obviously are objecting to the idea of this sort of shock campaign to go out and round people up, at the same time... There were people in the administration saying, well, there may in fact be people who are here illegally, and we're trying to formulate a policy of going after people who are here illegally and enforcing the laws on the books. And they can always come right back around the Democrats and say, don't you want that too?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I also think that, you know, when you think about the last time there was a major clash between the parties on immigration from Central America as a result of political instability and political violence in Central America in the 1980s, you had strong civil society movements um, working on behalf of immigrants, including faith groups who were major political constituencies that both parties cared about. And you don't actually have that now. This issue, like every other issue, is so politically polarized Um, And even the civil society activism is so politically polarized that it feeds into, you know, the narratives that each side of that polarization is trying to create.
3: All
2: right. Let's move on to object lessons. Uh, Susan, do you want to go first or Tammy, do you want to Uh, to? go first? I have an object lesson
3: and it is a devastating piece of information that I have just learned, (laughs) which is that – There actually isn't a capital jail. What? So Wait, there's what? been a lot of discussion about whether or not, right, inherent contempt authority and whether or not Congress can stick someone in jail. And there is such a thing as inherent, uh, inherent contempt authority and technically Congress could imprison someone. And this is often met with a reference to – it hasn't been used in, in over a century, but it's often met with this reference to the Capitol jail. So I always assume <laughs> that there must have been some physical holding itself, right? There must be <laughs> – (laughs) an actual capital jail. It turns out, according to uh, this USA Today article, um, that no, there is not a capital jail. What used to be the capital mm. jail is now the cafeteria of the House of Representatives. Lock them
2: up there, and actually,
3: Wait, which, well, by the, which, the way,
2: having one? to eat in that is
1: kind it's of cruel great. and unusual
2: punishment. <laughs> so. I knew it looked like a prison down the there. That they
3: <laughs> never actually replaced it with anything a hundred years ago when people were imprisoned or detained overnight. Uh, that they were actually just kept in a committee room room. Um, <laughs> also, unpleasant. And that in this case, if Congress were actually to direct the sergeant at arms to detain someone, I guess the attorney general, that they would probably commandeer the uh, District of Columbia uh, police uh, headquarters a few blocks away and use one of their holding cells. Anyway, this is. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm much just I'm very disappointed rule. for
1: this. I, I would just. That's an awesome object lesson. I just want to point out that, you know. Congress is actually missing its most intense uh, and effective coercive strategy. You know, civil contempt is a coercion, right? And so you're trying to force people to cooperate. And the the instrument that Congress has that would be just insufferable to people – who
0: One-minute speeches? Well, no, it would
1: just be like being subjected to certain members of Congress <laughs> over long periods of time. We're going to lock uh, you in a
0: room with Dan Aurora. Yeah, exactly. He's
1: not, <laughs> he's not anymore, but, but like – you know, like, we're going to leave you. in and Mark in, Meadows in are just going to have a chat until you until give you up. You cooperate. <laughs> it won't take long.
2: Apropos of Susan Zobbik, there's a tweet just now from Chad Pergram at Fox News who says Colleague Jake Gibson reports Attorney General Barr spoke to Pelosi in person today after the National Peace Officer's memorial service at the Capitol. Source says Barr went up to Pelosi and asked her if she brought her handcuffs.
0: Oh. Come on. Not like, that's classy
2: a classy guy. Wow. <laughs>
0: that's a gross <laughs> move.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, okay, who wants to go next? Tammy you do yours?
0: I, I will I have a somber object, which is the obituary in the Washington Post of our dear friend and colleague, Alice Rivlin. Alice was not just a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. Alice was a Brookings Institution (laughs) in her own right. She has been affiliated with this place on and off since the 1960s. But she, I mean, she wasn't just an incredible scholar and somebody who went in and out of government service. She wasn't just a pathbreaker, the first director, founding director of the Congressional Budget Office, the first female director of the Office of Management and Budget. She wasn't just a great colleague who's Interests in policy and public service and politics spanned well beyond economics. She, I remember in the run up to the 2016 election, she was just lecturing many of us in these hallways about the need to pay attention to uh, the closed off pathways for mobility for the American middle class and that we were not paying enough attention to that and it was going to shape the election. She was right. When she passed away this week at the age of 88, she was finishing a book on bipartisanship. And beyond all of that and all of those contributions, she was also just a tremendous supporter of her colleagues at Brookings and especially of women in public policy, women in economics. Uh, She got a PhD in economics from Harvard in the 1950s, which was no small thing When she was director of the CBO, she was a single mother of three kids. And she always um, was here for her female colleagues, uh, both inside and outside Brookings. So it's hard really to think about working at this place without running into Alice in the elevator, always incredibly put together. But I just wanted to take a minute to pay tribute to her and say we're going to miss her.
2: She was one of a kind. Um, I'll do my object next. Uh, this was actually a story that Tammy flagged. This oh, it's is a, so good. It's a heck of a story by my my very good friend Gordon Lubold uh, and his colleague Warren Strobel at the Wall Street Journal about a new missile that aims to kill only terrorists, not nearby civilians. Which has been named the Flying Ginsu missile.
0: <laughs> no, it is the It's flying a Flying Ginsu, Ginsu you guys. It's a missile
2: <laughs> with basically giant knives as steel blades on it that are deployed at the last second before it like comes crashing through the roof of a car and then basically, you know, chops up the person underneath I it. I just
3: like the meeting, right? So they're talking about missiles. They're like, We need to reduce civilian casualties. And somebody's like, hey guys what if we just stuck like a ton of knives on it? Yeah. <laughs> and somebody else is like, yeah, that's the one. So does that's it not
2: the explode? idea. It,
0: doesn't it does not explode. It, it just, just shreds It
2: you. just drops on you and the force of it obviously is it's at maximum velocity when it hits the object and then these blades deploy and just whoosh.
1: And I like, mean,
3: there have been these images of cars yeah. that have been targeted with these gaping holes and for a long time journalists have been like, no what the marks. hell is going on? What right. is this? And now we know. It's- so
2: is Gordon Yeah, exactly. As Gordon and uh, uh, Warren point out, the missile was born of an emphasis under former President Obama to avoid civilian deaths uh, in campaigns overseas. And also that basically another reason for it was that increasingly terrorist fighters were adapting to airstrikes and hiding among groups of women and children to put themselves out of reach because when these things blow up, they obviously have a blast radius. So somebody basically got the idea of like, what if it was just a big flying knife? Which you know, I mean, it sounds like something medieval or like out of Game of Thrones, but I mean, sometimes the old weapons are the best.
1: But do we know anything about how well it has worked?
2: Uh, I think, I like, guess, Susan said it. Seems to have been fairly effective, in, in, and and I mean, in it's, avoiding it appears to have definitely sure. killed. The it's definitely killed people. Targeted
3: whether it, you know, I don't think we have any. The United States military hasn't confirmed its use, and so they haven't released the specific statistics. So we don't know if it works in not killing. What also do
0: we know which company manufactured this genius? weapon because I'm trying to imagine the that. pitch video right <laughs> you have you have the office, uniformed officers like all the procurement guys lined up there and the guy from you know whatever defense company comes in with the video and he's like it can go through a Hezbollah deputy commander like this and, and
1: still <laughs> cut a watermelon
2: like but this. wait there's more if you buy one Ginsu <laughs> missile right now you will get two that's right two <laughs> Oh, God. The
1: Ginsu ads, you know, which were – I when, I don't know when they stopped running. They were a thing when we were
2: oh, kids. Oh, for sure.
0: You know, and they <laughs>
1: –
2: Cuts through this tin can and still slices your tomatoes. Like, why are you cutting cans? <laughs>
0: Mille- the millennial listeners to our podcast right now are like, what are they Not talking the about? Matt is one laughing just, at just, What's a Ginsu? Just
1: look to all the millennials listening to this.
0: Go on YouTube. Go
1: on YouTube and G-I-N <laughs> – uh, S-U. S-U. It
2: slices. It dices. It, it, <laughs> it is truly they, ends. they
1: are some of the <laughs> best, ends. most ridiculous ads ever. Oh, God. And everybody above a certain age sort of knows them by heart.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, ben, do you have an object to share? I do. At least I think I do.
1: Because today, Susan and my book is supposed to be available for pre-order on Amazon, which is – not ben, to say that you wrote a book, which is you not to say that? that it is available because it's not yet, but I think by the time anybody listens to this, the book will be available for pre order. It is called Unmaking the Presidency Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. So, this is the first time anyone's actually heard the title. Uh, um, I mean,
3: I have heard it a few times, indeed.
1: And I have to say that I have never worked on a book under more difficult circumstances than this one um, which is to say where the factual landscape is changing more rapidly more frequently more consistently and developing sort of before our eyes and i have never enjoyed a collaboration with any co-author more than i did this one with susan and all that said it's freaking good to be done with it it's
3: good to be done it's a it's a good book, we think.
1: Yeah, we think you should buy it. And we just now it. nothing I'm can happen
3: between now and January. <laughs> right, cuz it's not coming out
1: until January. And that means actually it means Donald Trump is going to stop tweeting. It means the factual landscape is going to there's no there's, impeachment. Well, uh, there may be an impeachment cuz we acknowledge <laughs> Look, that possible. If
3: an impeachment renders our book irrelevant, totally I worth am it. willing to give <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but yeah, there's going to be we're going to have factual stasis between now and January, so that nothing will happen to interfere with the uh, factual record of the book. Oh. So no stories, Shane.
2: Okay, no stories.
1: Quit no stories. reporting.
0: Just stop.
2: Just stop right. reporting
0: now until you've next put it week,
3: and well, we meet again. Yeah.
1: Congratulations.
0: Bu- buy our book. Thank you.
2: Uh, that brings us to the end of the podcast, you guys. Rational Security, of course, is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on lawfareblog.com. You can buy merch. Maybe they'll have even have a link to the book mm. on lawfarebooksandbabybeanies.com. Yeah, that's what the, the URL is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I thought so. Nice. <laughs> you, you can follow us. <laughs> what is the real website? for the
1: people? Lawfare Store. <laughs> <Dot> com. <laughs>
2: With H- no bullshit. TPS. T- <laughs> <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please leave us a nice rating and review. It really helps us out and helps others find the podcast too. Our audio engineer this week was Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by John Bolton and his remake of the Beach Boys classic, Barbara Ann.
0: What? Does anybody get the reference? Wait, what?
2: This is deep. Remember, oh Bob
3: Moran? Remember
2: John McCain? Oh! Oh, Bob Moran. Yes.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah,
3: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that was when that
2: passed for an inappropriate.
3: Right, when that candidate. was like a shocking thing. Right. Yeah. For yeah. Someone and now it's by. now it's
2: cute, like a ginsu knife commercial. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Sophia Yan, little known fact, uh, major Beach Boys Tribute pamphlet. No, I don't no, know.
3: No, so it's <laughs> not true. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia Yan will cut you. That's right. She doesn't need a Ginsu knife, baby.
2: Right through you with their piercing gaze. On behalf of my good friends, DeMarcoff and Woodis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. But wait, there's more!
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?